Hello, welcome to this episode of Great Conversations. This is our ninth conversation in our series, and we are excited to welcome you into the Great Conversation studios today. Joining me in our conversation this afternoon is Dr. Jonathan Green. Dr. Green is the president of Susquehanna University. Dr. Green, thank you very much for joining me today for a great conversation. It's my pleasure, thank you. As you know, as we explore issues in higher education, it's the case that there are many uh, that we could talk about. Mm -hmm. And so this afternoon, I would like to explore just a few important topics with you today. Certainly not all that we could talk about, but maybe some of the most compelling ideas floating around out there uh, in 2018. So with that said, Dr. Green, might you share with me your ideas and thoughts about what might be perceived to be one or two of the greatest challenges confronting higher education today. And by challenges, I mean those social, economic, other manners of forces that might be standing in between higher education mm -hmm. and the attainment of its higher goals of making education accessible to everyone and the university's mission of building the commonwealth. Um, I think you've just summed up what our challenges are. Um, <laughs> one of the things that um, has been particularly perplexing in the last few years is the ways in which public confidence in higher education has waned. Now that's been concurrent with a decline in confidence uh, among the American public in all institutions. Uh, compared to the government, we, higher ed looks fantastic. Compared to nurses, we're not we're not quite where we could be, um, but that that's something that has truly been dropping steadily over time. Now, what's very interesting is this very week uh, we uh, uh, saw a new study that the American Association of Colleges and Universities and Hart and Associates had done with major employers and their hiring officers. And what is heartwarming is that the folks who were actually hiring our graduates have a much higher level of confidence in what our institutions are doing than the general public. So the folks that are, are engaged directly with uh, the, uh, the output of our institutions are recognizing the uh, ways in which uh, we're providing significant added value. Uh, but a couple of the other ch challenges um, I think include the issues that uh, many people uh, don't really think clearly about uh, the best advantages, you're talking about the commonwealth, of the ways in which we educate the whole person. Um, and so uh, we see more and more uh, uh, noise in the media about the need to uh, expedite time toward graduation um, and ways in which um, we try to um, prepare students really specifically for job skills rather than um, a career portfolio um, and uh, that impatience I think indicates ways in which uh, people don't recognize how critical it is for young people to have the uh, opportunity both to integrate their knowledge um, and the skills that they're, that they're developing but that they also need time for that to uh, mature and ripen 
um, and build interconnectedness. And uh, any one of us could sit down, read an article, and then take a test on it. But the ways in which we've internalized it, connected that information to our other experiences, and uh, developed it into uh, part of the strengths that we have moving forward to address real problems that we're going to encounter is a very different experience. Um, and we certainly know through uh, strong empirical evidence that um, uh, students who have the opportunity to reside in a living learning community over a sustained period of time engaging in co-curricular activities that reinforce what they're doing in the classroom and being in community in a way in which um, sort of the world of ideas that they are engaging in and their fellow students are engaging in are what really build the foundation for the students that we see being the most successful and those experiences are what the employers in that recent survey were also recognizing were the advantages for the people who are most competitive and would be most successful in their organizations. It was a heartening report Indeed. and a very encouraging report for those of us every day in the business of effecting higher education. And something that you said I think is important and I'd like to go back to mm -hmm. it and that is the point that students being uh, involved in an opportunity to engage in both curricular and co-curricular activities wherein the content of both become interwoven and reinforce each other. President Green, Thinking about these challenges mm -hmm. to higher education, maybe those challenges being building the commonwealth and right. uh, responding in an equitable manner to education for all, how might teaching in particular, what we do in the classroom, how might those two occupations, what we do and teaching every day, how might those kinds of work in the classroom, in particular, provide pathways, perhaps, mm -hmm. to ways to respond to these challenges, teaching in particular. Well, I think I think part of the issue may be the question of in the classroom. Is that the place where that needs to to occur? Uh, there's a. a a famous quote that the um, I believe it was actually President Garfield, and mm -hmm. which means the only quote of President Garfield that has <laughs> survived, um, where he referred to the greatest education available to a young person in our nation was to be a student on one end of a log with Mark Hopkins sitting at the other end. Um, and uh, Mark Hopkins ended up being uh, the president of Williams College, but was uh, a highly regarded uh, teacher. And the, the, the nature of being able to have a discourse with a person who guides you through self-exploration um, is uh, a critical uh, part of, of, of a meaningful learning experience. Uh, but um, I think one, one of the things that at institutions like ours, um, the, uh, the Residential Liberal Arts College, uh, the ways in which we recognize that the classroom experience is Part, an integral part of a much more complex and holistic approach to the development of young people and, and the development of leaders um, is critically important and I think the ways in which we um, provide professional development for young faculty members as they come into these kinds of communities to recognize um, that we need to uh, exploit the things that we can do that can't happen anywhere else and so whether it's um, 
student-faculty collaborative research, uh, whether it's independent uh, uh, research and creative projects that, that are, are guided by faculty members, whether it's the opportunity to uh, implement leadership skills that are being addressed in a class through a student's participation in a campus organization. The thing that I think pedagogically uh, faculty need to be doing is to be aware of both what those opportunities are, how they speak to each other, and being in the context of an institution where, where the uh, uh, economies of scale of faculty and students allow them to actually know that that's what, what their students are experiencing and being able to help uh, draw connections uh, between what's happening in class and out of class in a meaningful way. Um, and uh, every day I get to see the ways in which uh, there is really remarkable developmental opportunity being seized and used because uh, we're in the kind of environment where the faculty member is able to um, use the classroom as a spot in a web um, and uh, where each of the threads come together. Uh, the real art of what happens in those classrooms is being able to draw those connections and be sure that the students are, are passing along each of those channels. So teaching really for, in your mind, for you, can happen anywhere on or off campus, but teaching is at the heart of what can really be the change agent in the student's life. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and I think just remembering that the counterpoint of teaching is learning. Um, and if our goal isn't fundamentally to be sure that we're preparing, we're preparing our students to be able to uh, learn continuously wherever they are, uh, then, then we've sort of lost track of what it is that, that uh, should be the ultimate goal. We're, we're preparing students to be lifelong learners in yes. the worlds around them um, and uh, the ways in which our teaching help, helps to uh, affect that is, is critically important. President Green, do you feel as though as a body, mm -hmm. higher education commits itself sufficiently to preparing young teachers. Many times our professors arrive on the campuses of our colleges and universities as content experts. Sometimes they come to us with teaching experience or other kinds of pedagogical pockets right. of expertise or knowledge, but many times they are far more focused on their content and research then perhaps the broader or, or wider spectrum of all the activities that comprise teaching. In your mind, overall, are we doing enough in responding to the needs of young teachers and providing what they need to really be well prepared to meet our students in those classrooms mm -hmm. all over campus? Well, I, th I think Part of the question may be who we are, um, but certainly um, in the uh, graduate programs uh, that our faculty go through around the country, there, there typically is not a lot of focus on pedagogy. Um, and historically, there are a handful of disciplines that have had uh, pedagogy components in them. Chemistry has always uh, had, had some component. Music, my own discipline, uh, doctoral programs, always have some component of uh, pedagogy in those curricula, but I think if we were to look at uh, those experiences for most um, of our uh, doctoral students when they complete, what they've really been uh, taught is what 
what is the toolkit uh, for you to teach people who are in a program like the one at the institution where you are? Um, and for many of us, the, the active teaching faculty are not finding themselves at R1 institutions. Um, and uh, so I think what, what has been really uh, promising over the course of probably the last 20 to 30 years is the ways in which um, our independent institutions uh, provide more and more professional development for young faculty members when they arrive. Um, that uh, uh, new faculty members have, have almost all had an opportunity to teach um, as graduate assistants. Yes. Uh, but I know when I was a graduate assistant, I, I taught for uh, two years at an institution where no one ever saw me teach except for my students. Um, and it was a great experience. Um, but in terms of was there, was there a developmental component, um, I'm hoping that, that uh, uh, there is now, because that certainly was, was a while ago. But uh, many of our institutions and, and this institution have um, significant resources applied to their centers for teaching and learning. Um, young faculty members are engaged often in, in teaching circles where uh, more experienced and uh, new faculty members are talking about strategies um, in terms of the work that they're doing. Um, and departments are small enough that student outcomes are uh, a regular part of those conversations. We assign mentors uh, to young faculty members as well. And many institutions will also assign a mentor outside of the department. Um, which I think often it's the idea that they're, uh, it's a politically safe person. Um, I think it's probably why we started doing that, but I think the other benefit is that it reminds, um, reminds younger faculty at places like this that it's the, uh, our desire to teach across disciplines and helping students see the interconnections that, that's one of, one of the real added values for us. And having, having those mentors from uh, extra departmental mentors, uh, I think, helps to reinforce that for, for our faculty members as well. So I think the we, if we're talking about higher ed in general, I think we do a better job now than we ever have. Uh, but I think perhaps higher ed across the academy um, would benefit by thinking about um, what the real likely career paths of our graduate students are. Um, and because certainly a significant percentage of people going through graduate programs do end up in the professoriate, and uh, uh, but often we teach them to be uh, only doing the research and not and not the teaching. So how we can do that collectively, I think, does need to be a long-term goal. Do we have, in your mind, sufficient resources overall to be able to <clears throat> invest more deeply in the pedagogical preparation of our young professors? In other words. There are many economic financial demands on universities and colleges across the country, but would you argue the resources are there, it just may be a question of leveraging those resources? Um, as a college president, I always have to, believe, I always have to be espousing that, that we need more resources to do our jobs effectively, um, and that's true. Um, I mean, there. I think there's there's no more compelling mission than to be uh, an institution dedicated to richly transforming the lives of young people and helping them uh, to achieve uh, long, meaningful lives in ways that they wouldn't had they not experienced what we provide them. And uh, anyone who doesn't see that as an important investment uh, that should be shored up in any ways that 
uh, we can uh, isn't paying attention because it's criti critically important to uh, the well-being of um, both those individuals, but their neighbors, and and fundamentally the nation and the world. Uh, we're we're building. Um, uh, the capacity to be good citizens and, and uh, good members of community. Uh, so there, um, I don't think we could ever apply more resources than the good that can come from them. Uh, but I would say that, that certainly at institutions like ours, um, the priorities uh, of the institution are on uh, the student experience and the outcomes of the students. So in terms of at least internal leveraging, uh, that will always be the first thing that we take care of is uh, being sure that the students have the best experience that they can um, and directing the resources we have in that direction. Uh, if we could do even more, it would be even better. I read a review <clears throat> of this university <laughs> online which, which stated Susquehanna is one of the best kept secrets in the country and I'm beginning to believe that's true from all you say and the beautiful campus here. It, it, it is a remarkable place. Um, I was at a, a national meeting of college presidents uh, in January where someone said raise your hand if you've ever referred to your institution as a hidden gem and every hand in the room. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but uh, uh, I, I think we're more of a gem than uh, uh, many of them. I mean, some of the remarkable things about the history of this place is um, uh, we are the ninth most economically diverse student body in the United States. Um, and talking about resources, um, uh, our endowment per student is the smallest of the top 50 in that group. Uh, but there has been a, a, a long commitment to uh, providing access for students because of their academic merit and uh, uh, so we, f we find ways of, of making it possible for deserving students to be here. That's so exciting. At this juncture in the interview, President Green, I'm going to ask you to pull your crystal ball out, gaze into it pensively, mm -hmm. and if you would share with us what you might perceive to be one or two of the greatest challenges that you believe will confront higher education in the future? Well, I think some, some of those challenges are upon us now. Um, the, uh, the challenges in terms of both the economic mobility of families sending uh, their students to college and university and uh, the the legit, legitimate cost of providing the quality education that those young people deserve. Uh, there's, there's no question that the return on investment is absolutely compelling. Uh, the, the cost of a high quality college education, uh, independent of the many ways in, in, in which it enriches lives, um, also the earnings potentials of our students and the ability of them to be able to uh, chart a course doing the things that are most meaningful to them uh, becomes entirely opened up yes. because of those experiences. Um, and uh, the financial rewards on average for students are multifold, uh, that investment. But it is um, also true that if we look at the demographics of, of traditional college-age students. Um, I mean, we know how many 18-year-olds there will be 17 years from now because they're already born. And um, knowing that the, the families that they're coming from 
and knowing the regions of the country they're in and the economic uh, uh, position of the, of the economic demography of, of that population, uh, there is uh, likely not going to be uh, the same family uh, wealth uh, compared to the cost of living index between now and then, and the product that we're delivering will will continue to uh, cost what it costs compared to uh, uh, inflation over time. And we've certainly seen in the last decade uh, that uh, adjusted for inflation, uh, our our families have less capacity now than uh, than they did a decade ago, and uh, so being sure that uh, we don't let um, the mechanisms that have, have fostered great innovation and, and great progress in, in our nation as a byproduct of our educational institutions uh, to become subject to entropy because uh, because of the distribution of wealth for the, the uh, families who will be sending students to school in the future. Yes, so really uh, that word entropy of course piques my interest. It summons up notions of Norbert Weiner and the human use of human <laughs> beings, if you're familiar with that work. I'm going to be reading it soon, apparently. <laughs> Weiner, I think you would find it quite compelling because Weiner argues that any system uh, that, that does not become a good steward, mm -hmm. a good custodian of the system itself is subject to entropy. And you've made that point very well today that in fact these economic challenges might present the biggest challenge yet to mm -hmm. higher education and certainly would you would you argue today that all of the needs that you had articulated earlier for a student to participate in higher will still be there we still students will still need to come to the university perhaps mm -hmm. to fully realize all uh, of their academic intellectual potential, and yet that goal may be moving a little bit farther and farther right. away as the years go on because of these economic factors. Well, I, I think we need we need to work collaboratively uh, to find ways to be sure that that doesn't happen. I mean, if 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 we don't change the playing field, that that would be the outcome. Uh, but if we're talking about 18-year-olds who, uh, 17 years from now, we have we have time to uh, make make prudent decisions in terms of investing in uh, the future of the nation and the future of our culture. Um, and I think um, even in our conversation, I probably because it's the nature of of discourse around higher education today, spent more time talking about the economic benefits without talking about the really fundamental social benefits. Um, the uh, Residential Liberal Arts College uh, is a unique American experiment um, and it is the one aspect of higher education that the rest of the world envies and looks at with, with a, a little bit of mystery. And if we look at the, the history of these institutions, which represent a, a small portion um, of uh, our student population. It's about 4% of college students in the United States attend our institutions. 20% of our presidents attended those institutions. Um, and 9% of CEOs of Fortune 500 companies attended those institutions. And so the ways in which uh, they are naturally predisposed to uh, developing leadership uh, has some historical support. And our institutions 
this kind of institution was really initially fostered by the founding fathers. If you look at the early uh, liberal arts colleges in the United States, there is almost always uh, an, an early le national leader who played a hand in the establishment of that institution. And they saw that there was an inextricable connection between the development of the whole person and the development of leadership to be able to have citizen leaders that would uh, foster their new democratic republic. And I think that that part of the experiment was actually a critical reason why our government has persisted for as long as it has. And so those investments are um, much, much deeper than preparing people just for meaningful careers. It's also preparing our nation to have a, the next generation of leaders. President Green, I want to thank you very much for joining us today in this great conversation. You have afforded new insights that I know will keep us in reflection and thought for a good while. Thank you so much for being in this great conversation. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.